This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kevin Elias, who is in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. The reason for the podcast is an excellent uh, manuscript that will be published in the journal titled Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Protocols, Improved Time to Return to Intended Oncologic Treatment Following Interval Cytoreductive Surgery for Advanced Gynecologic Cancers. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you, Pedro. I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to uh, discussing this manuscript, and, and I'm really interested in hearing your your thoughts on, on several topics related to, to enhanced recovery, and obviously you have contributed tremendously and a leader in enhanced recovery in the United States and globally. Um, so I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. Um, I wanted to ask you first, um, you know, obviously ERAS in the setting of any discipline of uh, surgical oncology um, has had important and uh, obviously uh, related outcomes as it pertains to associated with a decrease in the length of stay, um, reduced complications, improvement in patient reported outcomes. So now this study targets a, a really important point, um, the potential benefit of getting patients back to intended oncologic uh, therapy much sooner. That's, that's really very, very important, obviously, for, for many specialties. So I was wondering if we can start by having you tell us about uh, the reason for the study, why you felt uh, this was an important question to evaluate at this point. As you point out, Pedro, we've been seeing lots of publications over the last few years about the very short-term outcomes for patients on enhanced recovery protocols. Uh, shorter length of stay, fewer postoperative complications, but really when patients come to us for cytoreductive surgeries, what they really care about are the oncologic outcomes. And when we think about how to assess recovery from a surgery, one of the best ways to judge that is whether the patient is able to re-engage with chemotherapy in a timely manner. And so we looked at the resumption of uh, chemotherapy following surgery as that first true functional outcome uh, to assess recovery for patients. Yes, absolutely. Uh, very, very relevant. And often, obviously, yeah, many patients are always asking as to when can they get back uh, to, their, to their treatment. Um, now, you looked at patients with advanced ovarian cancer who had undergone neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy followed by interval cytoreductive surgery. And one of the questions that, that I think we, we often have is, you know, what, what's the appropriate amount of time to wait? What's, when is it ideal to return to chemotherapy for these patients? So we know from the, the primary cytoreductive literature that there is um, a, a, a window of probably between 21 and 35 days for uh, when chemotherapy would be considered uh, delayed beyond, say, 35 days from surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, and we certainly think that perhaps a little bit too soon from surgery, patients may not be sufficiently healed. Um, we, we don't have great data to say what the precise uh, time point is for the neoadjuvant population, but the way that I usually counsel my patients is to think about surgery as being slotted in in the course of their cycles of chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. So if they're getting chemotherapy on two, three-week cycles, then the cytoreductive surgery is usually going to be between three and four weeks following the last cycle of chemotherapy. Mm. And then the goal should be to resume chemotherapy about a month later. And so I, I think using that as a time frame of uh, we expect that within a month of surgery, you'll be able to resume chemotherapy seems to be a good guidepost. Yeah, absolutely. And then, Kevin, when you looked at uh, what was the ideal patient population for, for this study, what, what were your thoughts with regards to the inclusion and the exclusion criteria? Well, we wanted to focus on the neoadjuvant population because we felt that it would reduce a lot of the uh, administrative variables which go into initiating chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. For instance, uh, after primary reduction, if someone is establishing chemotherapy care for the first time or because we're a referral center, a lot of times our patients will receive chemotherapy somewhere closer to home. So there could be administrative logistics that were different from recovery, which might artificially delay resumption of chemo. Mm -hmm. So we thought because the neoadjuvant patients were already getting chemo at defined intervals, already had their uh, uh, portable catheters or their relationships appointments set up, mm -hmm. uh, it would be a more homogenous population. Uh, we also, for this study, we only included patients who uh, had known advanced stage disease, so stage FIGO stage 3C to 4, mm -hmm. Uh, so that we were going to be looking at a, a higher risk population as far as um, being at risk for more potential um, complications from surgery. Mm -hmm. So then what was your, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about your study design, the methodology, and, and particularly focusing on your primary and your secondary outcomes of the study. So this was a before and after design. So it's a retrospective cohort study. Mm -hmm. uh, the before population consisted of patients having interval cytoreductive surgery from uh, January of 2010 to January of 2015. Okay. Now, 2015 is when we began implementing an enhanced recovery after surgery protocol at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And that really was about a two-year process of you know, until we achieved full implementation. Mm -hmm. And we did not consider ourselves fully implemented until we had not only a clinical protocol in place, but also the infrastructure for uh, auditing compliance with that protocol and reporting that data back. Mm -hmm. So we essentially allowed it uh, for the purposes of this study about a two-year transition period window in there. And so the post-ERAS implementation cohort began in uh, January of 2017 and followed out to about two years from there. Um, so that way we could really see what the true differences were uh, and not have as much um, bias introduced by that transition period. Sure. Yeah, and it was, it's, it's almost as it's uh, avoiding sort of like the learning curve of, uh, of the uh, enhanced recovery um, implementation. And, uh, and you mentioned that the, also the, the primary outcome of, uh, of the study was then basically looking at when patients were getting back to the intended oncologic therapy, correct? Exactly. And in this case, as it was a, um, an ovarian cancer cohort, the intended oncologic treatment here was uh, resumption of chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. we, we chose 28 days as the primary outcome. Uh, so we used a landmark time point. That way we could have a dichotomous variable. Mm -hmm. And again, that was based not on that 28 days is, is a validated metric from the literature, but 
it is what best corresponds to the way that we counsel patients right. as far as resuming chemotherapy about four weeks after surgery. Right. As this, a secondary yeah. outcome, we used uh, 37 days, which a previous publication had seen as an inflection point for when patients had poor outcomes after at least primary mm-hmm. cytoreductive surgery. So we use that as, as a secondary outcome. We also looked at things like perioperative complications, length of stay, readmission, as well as just the, uh, as a continuous variable time to resumption of chemo. Yeah, and it's interesting also that the 37 days also somewhat coincides with, uh, in certain settings, uh, patients are asked to come back, uh, you know, not, not so much four weeks or so, but about six weeks after uh, treatment. And, uh, and, and, and I agree, I mean, sometimes that, that may seem too, too long. Um, now, Kevin, uh, how many patients were included? And of course, obviously, readers um, may wonder whether the patient groups were balanced. And always a question that comes up when you have these before and after comparison. I was wondering if you could speak about that. Absolutely. So, so the pre-ERAS cohort consisted of 150 patients. Uh, the post-ERAS cohort was 128 patients. Uh, the patients were very similar in most respects as far as the age distribution of the patients, their BMI, uh, incidence of diabetes, smoking, uh, the histologies and stages of the patients were the same uh, between the two cohorts. Mm-hmm. Um, Slightly more than 50% of the patients had stage 4A or 4B disease. So again, this is, these are patients with very bulky disease to start. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, balance had 3C disease. Um, similar as far as their pretreatment CA125 levels, similar as far as uh, number of chemotherapy cycles that the patients received. Mm-hmm. Where we did see a little bit of a difference is that from an anesthetic risk point of view, the patients in the post-ERAS cohort had more comorbidities. So using the American Society of Anesthesiologists score for anesthetic risk, uh, we had about 67% of patients in the pre-ERAS cohort were an ASA score of three, mm-hmm. whereas in the post-ERAS cohort, that was almost 87% of patients. Mm-hmm. And that was something that we, we noticed is that as time went on, our patient population became uh, a frailer patient population. Mm-hmm. Now, that may be because uh, we got better at triaging patients to neoadjuvant chemotherapy, uh, selecting patients who really were sicker to begin with to receive neoadjuvant chemo. The other thing I think that happened over the course of the study period is that uh, once we had gone through that transition period of implementing enhanced recovery after surgery, there became a willingness to operate on patients who beforehand may not have been deemed as optimal of surgical candidates. We found that enhanced recovery was really an enabling um, uh, intervention for bringing patients to the operating room, successfully getting them through a cytoreductive surgery that beforehand may not have been good candidates. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking to the, uh, to the value of enhanced recovery implementation in this particular patient population, um, so I'm really glad you brought that up. Now, actually, before getting into the uh, results of the studies, um, you know, certainly there, there's always a question as to how much compliance there is with enhanced recovery. So my question was, do, do you have a sense as to what was the compliance rate with ERAS guidelines in your setting during the post-ERAS implementation period? 
And, and as a follow-up to that, uh, what do you personally consider that is the appropriate level of compliance, you know, beyond which the results can no longer be maximized? That's a great question. And that's one of the things that I always look for in enhanced recovery studies or how do we know that ERAS was actually being performed, right? Um, so for this study, we defined 20 metrics of enhanced recovery after surgery uh, that we divided them into the preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative phases of care. Uh, now those metrics, uh, they appear in the supplement to the manuscript, but they include things like preoperative car oral carbohydrate loading, uh, no oral bowel preparation uh, prior to surgery, appropriate use of uh, thromboembolism prophylaxis and postoperative nausea vomiting prophylaxis, avoiding long-acting systemic opioids during surgery, not using uh, resection site drainage, and then after surgery, uh, mobilizing the patients on uh, day of surgery as well as thresholds for mobilizing at day one and day two of four hours on day one, six hours every day thereafter, mm -hmm. um, turning the fluids off within six hours of surgery. So those, those were all the metrics that went into um, assessing compliance. Overall compliance across the 20 metrics was uh, about 72% mm -hmm. for the patients in the study. Okay. Um, now, what's the optimal level of compliance is a great question. Uh, there are previous studies in the literature that have suggested that 70% is the point at which you see a, a difference as far as um, hospital outcomes for patients, meaning you have to have about 70% compliance to really see a shift in length of stay and, and perioperative complications. And so we set that really as, as the minimum threshold. Um, I'll say this study period that was uh, being looked at here, we were running like I said, around 72% compliance. Uh, now we run closer to 80 to 85% compliance. Um, and we do see that if you look at patients with even higher compliance, as they get into 90, 95% compliance, outcomes continue to improve. Mm -hmm. So there, there's certainly an inflection point at around 70%, but you can continue to see benefit even beyond that. So it, sh it should be the minimum, not, not the uh, the basic goal. Very good. So now then I'm getting on to the, uh, the results of the study, the punchline of the study. Uh, what were the results of the primary and actually the secondary objectives? Well, so the, the key was, uh, when we looked at the, the time to retain, uh, intended oncologic therapy, um, whereas in the, um, uh, at the at that 28 day time point, 80% mm -hmm. of the patients after ERAS implementation had resumed chemotherapy compared to 64% in the pre ERAS cohort. Mm -hmm. um, and we saw that that persisted out to looking at that later time point of 37 days postoperatively. By 37 days, almost 98% of patients in the post ERAS cohort had resumed chemotherapy compared to about 90% of patients in the pre ERAS cohort. So that was, uh, that was the, the primary outcome. Looking at some of the important secondary outcomes, for the hospital stay itself, um, patients on the enhanced recovery protocol uh, went home about a day sooner. So they had a median length of stay of three days as opposed to four days in the pre-ERS report. Mm -hmm. um, 
patients received uh, um, less IV fluid were more likely to have opioid sparing analgesia uh, in the post-ERAS cohort, just consistent with, with being on ERAS. And they had significantly lower rates of GI complications. Uh, so when we looked at ileus, vomiting, diarrhea, um, those were almost a third uh, uh, the rate in the post-ERAS cohort than the pre-ERAS cohort. And one of the metrics I think was just kind of interesting for this study was we, we totaled up all the various adverse events uh, that patients experience. And we looked at the, the average number of adverse events per patient, mm -hmm. so to speak. So mm -hmm. just some of the ratio of total events over total patients. Uh, and the total, those number of adverse events went down by about 36% in the post ERAS cohort. Very interesting. Um, and, and, and now, you know, certainly one, one of the questions that, uh, uh, were submitted actually by our um, International Journal of Gynecological Cancer Fellows was the following. Uh, were there differences between the two groups in terms of the level and experience of the surgeons and anesthesiologists performing the procedure, and could these have impacted the results of your study? So the surgical team was consistent throughout the study um, and that we didn't have new surgeons um, coming into the group uh, during this time. Mm -hmm. um, there is some variability among the anesthesiologists, and I think that that's uh, important in interpreting a lot of ERAS studies in that um, as opposed to, say, uh, a clinical trial where we had defined anesthesiologists, mm -hmm. um, there's certainly a lot more turnover in our anesthesia department than mm -hmm. there is within the surgical department. and there, that will introduce some variability in the study. Um, and I think what we, we're seeing here is, is a real-world experience. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's likely that if you have more stability in the anesthesia side of things, much like we do in the surgical side of things, you probably would see gains that would be even better. Even the better. would probably be even higher. Mm -hmm. um, you know, interestingly, I think on the surgical side of things, we saw that in the post-ERAS cohort, the uh, the incidence of, of bowel resections actually went up considerably in the post-ERAS cohort. So actually, the surgical aggressiveness of the group uh, increased. I think part of that was the data that had come out over that time period about the importance of getting patients to truly NED as opposed to just optimal cytoreduction. Mm -hmm. But also, again, the idea that we could take frailer patients, do a bowel resection, and still have the patients recovering not only in a, uh, a timely manner, but actually sooner than they had been previously. Yeah. So it really enabling, the, giving these patients the surgeries they really need. Yeah. And once again, I think it's uh, reaffirming the benefits of, uh, of enhanced recovery and seeing these results, uh, particularly with a much more complex complexity of uh, surgery. Um, so now I'm actually going to ask you, uh, you know, obviously, as you know, there's an increasing interest in minimally invasive surgery in the setting of interval side reduction, particularly for these patients that have a, a complete response or near complete response. Uh, wh what do you think or speculate might have been the impact of, of this on the results of a study like this one um, if you're looking primarily at a minimally invasive approach for interval side reduction? Well, certainly minimally invasive surgery is considered a component of enhanced recovery and one strategy for facilitating enhanced recovery. So even though in this population all the patients were having a laparotomy, 
I think that that is one way that you can push the envelope even further is by uh, triaging some patients who have had exceptional responses to chemotherapy to a minimally invasive approach. Uh, I certainly do it in my practice if I have patients that I think either because of their exceptional response or their frailty or both would be better served by a minimally invasive approach. Uh, I discuss that with them as an option. Um, I think if you're looking at patients who are getting minimally invasive surgery uh, and ERAS versus no ERAS and everyone's getting minimally invasive surgery, the differences are, are, I think are still in the favor of the patient, but they're probably not as extreme as we see in the, um, the open surgery population. But I think if you're talking about how do we provide uh, the therapies to patients uh, in such a way to maximize more patients getting back to chemotherapy on time after surgery, mm -hmm. including minimally invasive surgery as part of your protocol, uh, I think would be a very powerful approach. And, and I'm, I'm hoping that as some of the uh, trials now looking at the, the safety and oncologic efficacy of minimally invasive surgery for integral debulking, so we get that data back, we'll really be able to include that in our ERAS algorithm really at, on the front end. It, could this patient be a minimally invasive debulking candidate? And then, then you'll see even more patients going home sooner and, and getting back to chemotherapy faster. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so now I wanted to ask you, because this is something that came up in our own institution. Uh, I know that in other institutions where, have, where they have tried to target the same question, um, you know, the, the issue that, that we came up with, uh, you know, uh, was the, the, the return of intended oncologic therapy um, is often dictated by when the patients are asked to return for that chemotherapy appointment. In other words, uh, do we or are we able to really determine when the patient is ready for returning to chemotherapy if you're telling every patient, you know, your appointment is going to be in four weeks or your appointment is going to be in six weeks? And you alluded a little bit to, to this in, in your discussion of the methodology, but I was wondering if you could comment on that. How do we get a better strategy to assess when those patients are really truly ready for chemotherapy? Well, it would be great if we had better scoring systems for determining fitness for chemotherapy, and that might be something interesting to, to look at in future work. From my perspective, the criteria for when the patient's ready to resume chemotherapy are very similar to when they'd be ready to uh, have chemotherapy with any subsequent cycle of chemo. Are there laboratory parameters in uh, appropriate for receiving chemotherapy? Is the patient tolerating a regular diet? Uh, do they have dose-limiting fatigue? Uh, is their wound healed? I mean, those are really the things that we look at. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, we see patients who uh, are not thriving uh, after surgery, and they may need a little bit more time to recover. Um, but we found that by pushing up that post-operative appointment and getting patients back to chemo faster, mm. uh, the vast majority of them will be able to get back to chemo on time. When I counsel patients, I say, when you resume chemotherapy, I don't expect that you'll be fully recovered from surgery. So I think to your point, mm. I tell patients, I think it'll take you six to eight weeks to recover fully from your surgery. But I think by four weeks after your surgery, you'll be sufficiently recovered to initiate your chemotherapy. And I think that that's a setting expectations point of view. As I say, I think you'll be about 80% of the way back after a month, and you'll probably be okay to resume your chemo at that time. Uh, and it's not just the fact that starting chemotherapy in a timely manner from a pure um, 
cell cellular burden point of view is probably more effective, but it's also getting patients through chemotherapy and completing their course and getting on to the rest of their life faster is, has, has a lot of value from a quality of life point of view for patients. Yeah, really very interesting. And I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you highlighted that regarding the patient uh, counseling and the discussions. So I wanted to then follow up with, um, obviously you, you, you studied this in detail. Were there any factors that are predictive of a faster return to intended oncologic therapy? Are there any characteristics you say, this patient is definitely going to be ready, this one may not be ready? Um, and, and again, I mean, are there certain elements within the ERAS guidelines that you can say, well, if we're really compliant with this one, then the patient is definitely going to return to oncologic therapy sooner? Right. So as far as your first point, we, we did do uh, a multivariate logistic regression for predictors of resuming chemotherapy uh, at that 28-day time point. And, and by far, the number one predictor was were they on enhanced recovery protocol or not, an odds ratio of 10. Um, the only other variable that, that really popped out was whether or not the patient had a bowel resection. So patients who had bowel surgery were less likely to be uh, able to resume chemotherapy on time. But uh, age, PMI, smoking status, the uh, radicality of the case, how long they were in the hospital, none of those things uh, in multivariate analysis were, were predictive. So I think that um, patients who are having uh, slow recovery uh, in the hospital, um, if there are enhanced recovery pathways, they'll still probably be able to get, begin chemo on time. Um, and, and so really we found it to be the, the great equalizer in, in many ways. Mm -hmm. Now, in the, um, from the point of view of which of the variables drives this the most, um, you know, we, we did do some, some correlation studies and it seemed that it was um, the, the intraoperative variables which had the biggest effect, which was a little bit surprising. Um, and uh, because we would have thought it might be uh, what you did for the patient pre-op or maybe mm -hmm. uh, whether or not you mobilize the patient post-op, that's what previous studies would have said. But when we thought about it, it made more sense, and, and for two reasons. The first being, as I mentioned, we don't have just a uh, defined anesthesia group who's doing all these cases. So the intraoperative variables, the behavior of the anesthesiologist, is probably where the most variation is, uh, in our population at least. Mm -hmm. The second thing is it's the it's the decisions that are made intraoperatively that really drive compliance with the postoperative outcomes. So the the administration of long acting opioids during surgery, the judicious use of intravenous fluids during surgery, preventing hypothermia and preventing nausea and vomiting, um, those things will dictate whether or not the patient will ambulate on day of surgery and begin a diet on day of surgery. Patients who are fluid overloaded, narcotized, nauseated, uh, they will not be compliant with the protocol uh, because they will not be as optimized for postoperative recovery. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and now, um, Kevin, what would you say are the limitations that you would highlight to the audience with regards to the study? Well, I think the biggest limitation is the fact that this is observational. This is a, it's, it's a retrospective study it's coming out of a single institution. Mm -hmm. And so we are commenting on associations, but we really can't pin it down to causation here. Um, we're really 
observing what how our practice has changed over over the time period here. I think the second thing that's uh, a limit here is that we're just looking at the patients in the uh, neoadjuvant population. Mm -hmm. Again, that's a very specific cohort. These are patients with very bulky disease to begin with and patients who are uh, potentially too frail to undergo primary side reductive surgery. Uh, how these results would play out to patients having primary side reduction, uh, particularly uh, radical primary side reduction, um, the, the differences might might be more pronounced or, or less pronounced. Mm -hmm. It's hard to predict. So now, uh, Kevin, one last question. Uh, and, and again, this has been a great opportunity to learn um, about this topic, to learn from you and the details of the study. Uh, but one of the things I always ask uh, the authors is, what are the, what are the implications of the findings in this study in your practice? Uh, how will this uh, uh, you know, certainly impact how you manage your patients? Well, it, it really brings me back to a fundamental question I have in, in conversations with patients when I'm counseling them about how to manage advanced ovarian cancer, which is, uh, while we know that surgery plays a vital role in the treatment of this disease, ultimately the patient's sensitivity to chemotherapy is what will drive their long-term survival. And we want to craft the surgery in such a way that it allows them to get their chemotherapy in a timely manner, whether that's evadjuvant or neoadjuvant chemo. Mm -hmm. What I've told patients is that, at least within this neoadjuvant population now, I expect that most of them will be able to get through intraoral side reductive surgery and back to chemotherapy in such a way that they're really able to stay on a, on a predictable time frame. Um, I think that there are implications for this for other aspects of gynecologic cancer. So patients who are gonna have adjuvant uh, radiotherapy or, uh, or, or combined multimodality approaches. Um, and I think that'll be interesting to look at uh, in, in other studies. But what I tell patients now is that when they're being counseled for surgery, any previous conceptions that they've had from prior experiences with surgery or having talked to other people about surgery about how, how they will feel afterwards, how long it will take them to get chemo. Uh, I tell them to really dispel those notions because what we see with a, with a modern enhanced recovery protocol is that uh, patients are able to recover quickly, get back to chemo and then back to the rest of their life uh, in a really a, a much quicker manner and with fewer uh, morbidities than they, they would have experienced in the past. Yeah. Listen, Kevin, it's, uh, it's been a, a great opportunity once again to, uh, to learn from you. Uh, I, I really think the work that you're doing for enhanced recovery in patients in gynecologic oncology in terms of the recovery after um, the, the multiple treatments that um, our patients undergo uh, is really remarkable and, and commendable. And uh, once again, thank you so much for this uh, manuscript and for your time um, in discussing this topic. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it, and uh, thank you for supporting Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Research. Thank you, Kevin.